Hello? Um, hello? Hello? Okay. This is, this is, this is 88.7 WHCL from Clinton, New York, and li you're listening to Finding Dodo. I'm your host, Mian, and today's topic has been a long time coming. Um, let me just make sure this is on. Mm, okay. <clears throat> today's topic has been a long time coming. I've been wanting to do a history of vegetarianism, um, like the first vegetarian person in history, different stuff like that, and this figure today is the part of that, so it was originally when I was researching for the topic of the history of vegetarianism, uh, but then I realized I had enough research on this person to make a whole show just on them. So the person I'm talking about today is Al-Ma'ari, perhaps the earliest known vegan in human history, in recorded history. And recently I've been thinking a lot about intersectional veganism and how different systems of oppression are interconnected and POC veganism and stuff like that. And people have this idea, I think, that all vegans are white and all vegans are wealthy, like this Instagrammy idea of veganism full of just like aesthetic breakfast bowl pictures, which is not true at all. Veganism is a social justice movement against the systematic oppression that comes from speciesism, um, where we see sentient beings as commodities and and there for us to profit off of or consume and <clears throat> speciesism is like I'll explain a little more because I feel like a lot of people don't know about this um it's kind of like racism sexism it's when you draw an arbitrary line between different species like say dogs versus pigs or bunnies versus chickens or cats versus cows and I think you can tell like so the former are beings that we see as our pets our family members um and these sentient beings are similar in all the morally revel relevant relevant ways like intelligence and capacity to suffer but is it is literally illegal it is punishable by our government to even neglect a dog and people are horrified if you leave a dog in a car when it's hot outside and um and certainly it's illegal to traffic the flesh of a dog or a cat but the government on the other hand subsidizes the mass exploitation systematic torture and killing of farm animals so that's really what speciesism is is drawing this arbitrary line between those two different species of animals and um, it's a societal, I guess, like what the word is, like societal construct. It's kind of just, yeah, it's very arbitrary and it's not founded on science at all, the way we treat different species. But <clears throat> going back to today's topic, so people like to think of veganism as this privileged group and um, sort of this internet fad, or I'm not sure internet fad, but just this dietary fad, when in fact, according to a Gallup poll, wealth is inversely correlated with the likelihood of a person to be vegan or vegetarian. And as I'll be talking about today, the first documented vegan was actually a person of color. And I could go more in depth about intersectional veganism, but yeah, I, I thought it was very interesting that um, like people think of veganism as very white, but this person um, it, it's not like constricted to race or socio like economic status in the modern day and kind of like looking into the history of that is interesting so yeah today's topic al ma'ari was fascinating <clears throat> in a lot of different contexts not just veganism not just being the first documented vegan he is best known for being a poet in the 11th century middle east and syria but um, in addition to being vegan, he was also an atheist, which was very rare and controversial at that time. And he followed the philosophical thought of rationalism, which is kind of connected to his um, veganism and his atheism. I'm not sure if atheist is the right word. We'll kind of get into that. That, but he was—he's like a 
there are some things that saying that was they were saying he's a theist or like a monotheist um but he was very critical of institutionalized religion at least and he was also very pessimistic um and it was kind of his his thing his philosophical outlook was like said to be like rational pessimism which yeah i don't quite know we'll get into that too so first about his sort of life and times so al ma'ari by the way it's spelled a l and then m a dash not dash um like apostrophe a r r i and i think that's pronounced al ma'ari so that's how i'll be saying it but yeah his full name was abu al ala al ma'ari um and he has an even longer full full name but i'm not gonna say that he was born in december 973 a.d but that's still mm, very very long time ago in modern-day Marat at Marat al-Numan near Aleppo, Syria, al-Ma'ari is actually his nisbiya, nisba, or an Arabic toponymic, top, toponymic or geographical nickname. Uh, he was born into a noted family of the town that was part of a greater tribe that was distantly connected to the aristocracy of Syria, dating back hundreds of years. And I don't know much about 11th century Syria, but I assume, like, if you're going to be a poet, you have to be somewhat well-off. Like, a lot of people were probably, I'm assuming, agricultural farmers, that kind of, it was probably an agricultural system. And so, yeah, it kind of makes sense that he was well-off. And his family was a part of a branch of the Tanuk tribe, which originated from southern Syria and had been allies with the Romans in defeating the rebel queen Zenobia, which was so interesting to read because she's actually a really fascinating figure in history. And um, there's actually this website called Rejected Princesses, which is like the premise of the website is like princesses that were too like um, intense or too independent, I would say, <laughs> to be Disney princesses. So they're like rejected princesses. And it's about really strong, independent women um throughout history and one of them was Zenobia and I really remember her because um she was basically this warrior queen that was very charismatic and conquered almost like half of the Roman Empire in the mid 200s um so yeah kind of long tangent um that's the kind of the ancestral background that Al Ma'ari was from but yeah she she could be like her own episode I kind of want to do an episode on her so at four years old um, he became virtually blind due to smallpox, and some credit this with his pessimistic life view later on, which is understandable. Four years old is really, really young to lose your eyesight, um, because I was thinking, like, that's around the time of my earliest memories, so I wonder if he was ever able to visualize co- color and stuff like that in his adult life, and it's it's kind of crazy, like, wow, it it actually is crazy to imagine, like, what he did. He went traveling on his own, like, many, many miles, so that's very impressive that he did that when he was blind. Um, He was then educated and began to write poetry from a very young age, as young as 11 or 12, in Aleppo. And so it was called Aleppo then still, because Aleppo is one of the oldest cities in the world. And he also studied in Tripoli and Antioch. And this was during what is known as the Golden Age of Islam, which was from like, oh, it was like, I think it, the source said it was like 900s to 14th century, something like that. Um, yeah, around the turn of the millennia, I think. Um, and it was where the Middle East, especially this was centered in Baghdad, which is the capital of modern-day Iraq, um, was the hub of learning and academics. And 
scholars actually translated Greek texts, and they um, there were great strides in science and philosophy. And I, I always thought of Greek history being very much Western, not Middle Eastern, because I think I associated Romans, um, who borrowed heavily from the Greeks with sort of like Greek uh, heritage and stuff, but actually there was a lot of Greek-Arab Greek exchange that went on as well. So yeah, Greek, super influential. In 1004, Al-Ma'ari learned that his father had died, and a few years later, he traveled to Baghdad, which, like I said, was where things were at, and which I, ca so he, I calculated this on Google Maps, and it was around 836 kilometers um, for a journey on foot. I'm not sure what the stuff was back then. I mean, it definitely wasn't cars, <laughs> um, so it was probably like that footpath that he was using, maybe by horse, maybe something like that. Um, yeah, but very, very long, 836 kilometers. He stayed in Baghdad for around a year and a half, and he was studying, and he was received very well in literary circles, and his first book that he published, or kind of poetry collection, was really popular. Um, but he was also starting to fall out of step with the mainstream, and he was by now already a very controversial figure, especially on account of his views on religion, and his aesthetic beliefs were kind of developing at, at this time as well, and he also resisted selling any of his poetry, which is obviously a bad business move if you want to stay, like, I mean, I feel like as an artist, like, you're lucky, you're seen as lucky just to get a person that will buy pay money for your artwork but he was like no I don't want to like even monetize this artwork like it's my art I don't want to sell it I don't know something like kind of he, he was like very original <laughs> in his outlook on life and so he didn't want to sell his poetry and he couldn't find a patron so he eventually had to leave it was kind of inevitable I suppose and in 1010 so he's around 37 years old by this point he hears that his mother is ailing back at home, and so he might have heard this, he might not have heard this, but he journeys back to his hometown, Ma Ma'ara, but um, yeah, so that's why it's not a coincidence that his Al-Ma'ari, it kind of sounds close to Ma'ara, because his name was kind of like the nickname given to him based off of his place of origin. Yeah, but anyway, so he arrives shortly after her death, unfortunately. He doesn't get to see her, so he ends up, but he ends up remaining in Ma'ara for the rest of his life, but he would maintain, and so Ma'ara is like this, like I said, it's like a small village town. It was a small town off of Aleppo, so it wasn't, it was like a pretty small town. It wasn't like a big hub, and so he really was deciding to kind of like settle in in a more ascetic life, and yeah, but he would maintain correspondence with scholars, nobility, and his students that he had met and people he had met and stuff like that, despite being in kind of like this small town for the rest of his life. And so that's where modern scholars have gleaned a lot of information about him too, is because he wrote so many letters because he wasn't really in the place where the center of like academia, like say Baghdad or something. And a lot of people would just make the trek to this town as well just to see him. And he also continued to teach within his hometown and was sought out by students far and wide. And he never married, and he died at the ripe old age of 83 in May 1067 in Ma'ara. Ma and he followed a, all these remaining years. He followed a peaceful, simple lifestyle in this small town, and he liked to live this secluded life, kind of like this philosopher life, I feel like, kind of what you imagine like what Plato talks about, like Aristotle living like at the top of the hill, like has his own little like 
not Shaq, has his own little, you know, house going on. But yeah, his philosophies, despite this kind of secluded life that he was trying to live, he ended up being quite wealthy um, later on in life because I guess like his books sold so well and he was, um, I wow, that's interesting. Like, did he sell his teaching skills then? I wonder, it never said anything like that, but I guess like people would come to pay him as well like pay him respects and pay him money because he was kind of like this monk figure but um yeah anyways so his philosophies despite him trying to kind of step out of the spotlight his philosophies continue to be debated and remain very controversial and his poetry continues to be very revered and he is now regarded as one of the greatest classical arabic poets of all time and one article compared Shakespeare's role in English literature to his role in Arabic literature, which I thought was interesting. Like, it shows how ignorant I am, and I feel like the U.S. education system is about talking about, like, traditional literature in other languages. Like, um, I'd, I had no idea about, like, this guy who's actually very influential in this very widely spoken language. And it is also thought that Dante's Divine Comedy was inspired by one of his works, and Franz Kafka also kept a translated version of this guy's poetry as well, so very influential even beyond Arabic literature. And he also actually came up in the news in 2013 when fighters related to Al-Qaeda beheaded the statue of him that had been erected in his hometown Ma'ara, and this was probably because of the ideological challenges his legacy has left. He was kind of like a peaceful, non-religious person, and ISIS is like the exact opposite of that. Um, yeah, and so like we, there's not too many details about his life, probably because he did try to leave it secluded, but um, I'm going to go into now about his position on various subjects because there actually is a lot on that, not so much. I mean, his personal life sounds like it was really just like Kind of chilling in Ma'ara and living like his ascetic life so I'm not sure how many there's not many like juicy drama details to dish out about him but yeah I'm going to talk about his position on different subjects um well three subjects actually his um sort of philosophy of rationalist pessimism or pessimist rationalism and his views on religion and atheism and third his um his veganism so <clears throat> Regarding sort of his rationalism, I would say this is the overarching philosophy he held that led to his views on the other two, religion and veganism. Um, or rather, his rationalism brought out those things, and then the dissonance that he felt with the world on being an atheist and a vegan led him to become more pessimistic about the world. So it's kind of this this cycle. And he saw reason instead of like div not not divinity he saw reason instead of sort of i i would say religion but sort of like he he felt like reason and critical thinking were really important and they were instead of instead of authority kind of customs and traditions and authority telling you what you should think he was saying like how important it is to look to reason as the source of truth and divinity and um yeah how you should live your life and so there's one aspect of his rationalist thinking that I really can't agree with though and that was his antinatalism and he was so pessimistic about the world that he believed that people should not have children that people shouldn't be brought into this world and I can't find a quote for this but this view is widely attributed to him and he also like wanted on his the epitaph on his grave to be like 
my life was not a mistake on me it was a mistake on my parents like my father um as in saying like I should never have been born I am not quite sure um I mean I feel like that could kind of be just like a jab but that could also be like very serious um if you want that to be like what people see at your deathbed or your grave graveyard grave um and I think it's comes back to like he was very ahead of his time so I think it must have been very frustrating to live as him and I think like even today it's like very lonely it's not so lonely to be non-religious anymore because that's actually grown a lot and younger people are more and more non-religious um and it's more like I feel like religious tolerance I always say like oh stuff has gotten better but then obviously like in the last couple of years it's gone backwards but like in general if you look at the wider span of time like religious tolerance has increased compared to like you know like when when for example like when America was instituted and people came over here to the new world they were like oh we're so tolerant because we're tolerant to all forms of Christianity but now like it's gone farther than that and like we're trying to be tolerant towards different religions and non-religious people and separation of church and state and stuff like that so I think it has gotten better but certainly like living as a vegan um today I can't imagine being one in the 11th century like he's literally the first documented vegan ever so it must have been very lonely and like even today I think of like I mean not just veganism like the fact that every second 2,000 sentient beings have their throats slaughtered because of people's taste buds but like how people don't have access to drinking water how people how there are war zones in the world like the world is clearly a very messed up place with a lot a lot of suffering happening like every second it's so much it's hard to rationalize it's hard to like it is really hard to understand but I I don't think the answer is like oh we should not bring anyone into the world like I don't think that makes the world worthless as a place to live in and my first reaction to antinatalism is always like a when so much suffering is happening in the world then there is even more reason to stay and change it especially a person like him who was tried to live as peaceful life as possible um and b if you think life is more trouble than it's worth like it's a little inconsistent that he chose to live really and he died at a really really old age like I think it's inconsistent to say others should not be born and like you shouldn't have children but then like you yourself choose to continue living every day and obviously I don't think the answer is then like well why are you alive like that's not what I'm saying I'm saying like I think that despite its struggles and what goes on in the world there are still enjoyments and things that are worthwhile but then okay so that was my original take and I was like anti-natalism is just like trying to be edgy and it's not it's so stupid and silly but um then I was thinking about um where where was I um but yeah then I was thinking about climate change with I I think bring something really different into this conversation because it wasn't a thing in his time but I think that changes my perspective on his views and there's actually um I was just seeing in the news the other day there's right now a movement going on called birth strike um it's like hashtag birth strike where women are refusing to bring children into a world where our leaders are not taking climate change seriously and this is a real concern like it is is it irrespons- is it irresponsible to bring a child into the world that is headed towards environmental disaster and we already have climate refugees and it's just going to keep on growing so while we figure things out 
will we figure things out before it's too late? And I think the deadline the UN has given us is 12 years. Like, we have to turn things around in 12 years. And I don't see the Green New Deal, like, people are always dismissing it as, like, oh, you know, it's too radical, it's socialism. But um, really, like, do you have another solution? Do you have something else that's going to save us from climate change disaster? Like, I have a sticker on my laptop that says like no jobs on a dead planet and I think that really summarizes everything so um yeah I think like climate change global warming really brings his views new validity um but he also like articulated them when there was no global warming so like his view that life is sort of like inevitably horrible and just like a long stretch of suffering that we have to endure i definitely do not agree with that but i think climate change adds an interesting ingredient into this conversation and also as a final discussion of his pessimism um taking into account the context of his time not only was he like before climate change but it also makes more sense it also made more sense when i thought about like how in 2019 we have so much work to do but things if you look at the last 200 years or 300 years then human rights and women's rights and poc rights and even animal rights have improved and they have gotten better like they've gone worse in some sense because like industrialization and like child labor was a thing and um like industrial factory farming that wasn't a thing before nowadays so like stuff has gone backwards but also like as people realize things and we in the the sphere of society's moral consideration has expanded slowly but almost like it seems inevitable to me at this point just reading history that and that's why I do this kind of these kind of shows so I can read about people that succeeded in the past and that were activists and I mean interesting not just activists but like interesting things about people that um they were fringe in their time but then their views are now mainstream like I'm thinking of abolitionists and so forth it was actually funny this is often a tangent but I'm reading um Huckleberry Finn right now and he it's it's about Huck and um Jim going and traveling and Jim is um an escaped slave and Huck was like oh people will think there was just like this short quote where he was like people will think I'm a dirty abolitionist and I was like interesting like in my history books it's always like abolitionist equals hero but obviously back then that was like a dirty word that was not seen as a compliment at all that was seen as like this radical idea but anyways like that that ties back to what I'm trying to say which is um society has had this like the the arc of moral justice does bend towards the right way inevitably although we have to do the work to do that but it also does seem like it it happens and al maari the guy we're talking about um didn't have access to that knowledge of that history because he lived before it and although he was like in this golden age of islam of scholarship and stuff like that i'm not sure that was more like academia's growth that wasn't really social justice movements that were doing well or burgeoning at that time so so yeah i think that's another thought slash explanation for his pessimism and there's another quote on his yeah i wrote down here there's another quote on his rationalist thought from a work that was banned by the Algerian government, actually, and, like, that speaks volumes about the Algerian government, but it's, quote, you've had your way a long, long time, you kings and tyrants, and still you work injustice hour by hour. What ails you that do not tread a path of glory? And then it goes, 
but some hope a divine leader with prophetic voice will rise amid the gazing silent ranks, an idle thought. There is none to lead but reason to point the morning and the evening ways, unquote. So, or end quote. So, yeah, I think that is kind of speaks to his pessimism. Like, he sees all the suffering going on and he's waiting for this, people think there's going to be this leader, but he's saying, like, that's an idle thought. No one is going to come forward and save us from the world's suffering. Like, we have to turn to reason. Um, but then he obviously, like, did not see reason as like present very much in the time period that he was living in or nor did he see like historical progress mapped out behind him um so regarding religion the next topic he was especially critical of organized religion and he said that religion was quote a fable invented by the ancients end quote and worthless except to those who exploit the credulous masses he also said, quote, do not suppose the statements of the prophets to be true. They are all fabrications. The sacred books are only such a set of idle tales as any age could have could have and indeed did actually produce. End quote. So the same book also says the same book that I was reading about him um, that had these quotes also said that he was a monotheist, but that God to him was impersonal and that for him the afterlife doesn't exist. And he was also critical of the masses that blindly followed religion, especially those that, um, especially like those people that just followed the religion of their parents and like what their community. And he was basically saying like, oh, you're just that religion because that's what everyone else around you is and if you were born in another place then you would just be following whatever their religion was which I think is actually largely true like you don't it's rare for someone to hold a religious view that is not what they were what was passed down to them from their parents like people mostly follow religion by like community and by geographical region or by family and so, but he was also critically critical not only of Islam, but also Judaism and Christianity. And he even wrote a poem, which I think is funny, where heaven is filled with philosophers and poets and hell is filled with religious figures. And I think it was his sort of job as a way to show how religious figures often don't follow their own preachings at all. And so finally, I'm going to talk about his veganism. And this is really important because we have vegetarians throughout history before, from before all Ma'ari, like Plutarch and Pythagoras, but no vegans. And so I kind of gave up on like finding a vegan from a really long time ago because it just, um, like I personally was fine with being vegetarian for a very long time and I ate milk and eggs and like I, I think there's no compassionate way to kill someone and the like the most common ways animals are killed today are by gassing and bolting and beheading and usually after a short thankless existence in factory farms but milk and eggs always seemed like a peaceful process to me like even a symbiotic one and obviously that changed when I found out about like male culling in the egg industry where they don't have a use for baby male chicks because they can't lay eggs so they just suffocate them in giant plastic bags or they um, grind them up in this blender that they're kind of just thrown into and um, I advise everyone who contribute like to eat that eats eggs to check out male culling videos because I mean I think it's important if you're paying for a practice to continue then you should be aware of what that practice is um and often in dairy cows they 
are artificially inseminated because they don't produce milk unless they are pregnant, just like other mammals. And in the industry, it's called the rape rack. And that was when I was like, okay, I can't, I can't like partake in this anymore. And I had to change. But what makes that's what makes all Maori so impressive for me is because I had to see like a really the modern day version of the egg and dairy industry and how horrible, horrible they are and almost like worse than the meat industry because you're exploited and then killed after like your milk and your eggs are being taken away um and you're exploited for a lifetime and then you're killed rather than just being killed at the end um and so he became vegan when he realized sort of like any sort of exploitation any sort of benefiting off of the biological parts or secretions of an animal is wrong. That was the view that he held. It didn't have to be done in a way that was like, sort of like, you know, sort of like what we think of as animal agriculture today, like how much harm there is, how much suffering there is. Um, And I think there is an argument for dairy actually being inherently cruel because dairy milk, if you are drinking dairy milk, it means it was taken away from like, an actual baby cow that it was meant for, but, um, like, eggs, I, I think about this a lot, too, like, if baby male chicks weren't ground up, and if female hens were treated well, then, like, what would my position on eggs be, and I think it's really an obscure question, because even backyard hens are sourced from the places that do the male calling, so it's kind of unavoidable in today's society to not contribute to suffering and and bloodshed but from a philosophical standpoint I think it's like interesting that he held this position even when like far far before factory farming and anything like that and like if for example I it, it didn't take a video for him to be like he was just like on matter of principle he decided not to consume any animal products so yeah, I mean, that's just, like, so long ago, too. This is 900s AD, 1000s AD, like, and so I want to end off with a quote by him that talks about this, and it's a really pretty poem, and so, yeah, so, quote, do not unjustly eat fish the water has given up. Okay, I thought this is funny, because I was like, the water, like, we're worried about the water, not the fish. Okay, I'm gonna keep on going. Um, and do not desire as food the flesh of slaughtered animals, or the white milk of mothers who intended its pure drought for their young, not noble ladies. And do not grieve the unsuspecting birds by taking eggs, for injustice is the worst of crimes. And spare the honey which the bees got industriously from the flowers of fragrant plants, for they did not store it that it might belong to others, nor did they gather it for bounty and gifts. I washed my hands of all of this and wished that I perceived my way before my hair went gray. And so, yeah, he was vegetarian for a very long time, and, and then he became vegan. And he's more vegan than I am, actually, because I still consume, like, I'm not, I don't, I'm not sure if I've even consumed it in the past many months, but, like, honey is sort of just, like, I've read studies that show bees don't feel pain, and they've done experiments where, like, bees don't choose the option that gives them like helps them avoid pain or seek pleasure so scientists have concluded that they don't they're not like sentient in that way and so but I think like that's interesting like he obviously is coming to veganism with a very spiritual idea of what it is like we should not be taking advantage of any animals for not just their flesh and their bodies but what they produce as well and it's not for us to take um and so yeah very interesting relationship idea of like a 
the human animal or humans are animals but like human and farm animal relationships so yeah thank you for listening and tune in next week so next week's topic will be helen keller we all know her as the inspiring individual who overcame her blindness and deafness but what i at least i didn't know was her contribution as an activist for women's suffrage for labor labor rights first she was part of the socialist party and anti-militarism so i actually looked her up because i was thinking about this guy alma ari going blind at four and i was wondering like when did helen keller go blind so i was like kind of reading about her so yeah that will be next week's topic thank you for listening